you must feel the depths of God's judgment if the cross will ever be good news to you. As we uh, get started today, I want you to to prepare with me to go to a a very dark place. Um, It's a place that your Bible doesn't write about a lot, but you experience the fallout of in many of the pages of Scripture. We're going to look at the fallout from God's judgment on the nation of Israel, where they were crushed under God's judgment. Innocent and guilty people alike, prophets and scoundrels were taken into captivity, into Babylon. And as the shock of that reality hits them, as we'll find in Lamentations 1, they are simply overwhelmed with grief. Maybe you felt grief a little like that before, or maybe a lot before. I don't know the story of everyone in here. Maybe it was feeling the weight of your own sin or feeling the weight of others' sins against you or simply the grief that comes with a fallen world. Things like disasters and things like uncomfortable chapters in American history or physical ailments. The point is, I don't want to downplay the grief of anybody in here Because grief is universal. In fact, that's going to be a major part of application today. But the main focus of my time is talking about the grief of Israel. And I think that this will only help us understand God's judgment more clearly. And it will point us more clearly to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is the hope that we have in the midst of grief. That is the only hope we have in the midst of grief. So with that in mind, the words that we are about to read are very dark. And I think particularly why is because the character in this writing, a grieving woman, is a personification of Israel as a nation, both innocent and guilty. A single person, alone in the dark, grieving, crying out to God. And one reason I think this approach is so important is because if you're like me, you can read about large groups of people. You can read stories in the Bible, and you can be numb to the fact that they are real. That they are people who lived and suffered and died. So before this text is read, I'm going to go a little farther here. And I want to really put you in the shoes of this person. So I want you to imagine that you are alone and you are in the dark. And the bombed out crumbling place that you are hiding in is not your home because your home is gone and your friends and your family and everybody that you would be helped by and everybody that you would help you don't know where they are you don't even have the closure of their death 
And the only light you see is coming in from outside. And it is the flames consuming the city that you love. Nobody is coming to help you. And what's worse is you know your nation had this coming. And you're not sure exactly how much of it is your fault. You only want the pain to stop. But you have no evidence that it will. You have only a hint of a promise of God coming to fix things someday. You try to remember what was written, but you can't. There's no Bibles to be found. Future promises almost seem worthless because your current situation is so overwhelming. And so, in the darkness, the following words are said about you. This is verses 1 through 11 of Lamentations 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations. She who is a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none, none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her. For they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans And turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Oh Lord behold my affliction. For the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands. Over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. They trade their treasures. Rather, all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. 
Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Let me just pray for us for a minute. Dear God, I forget so often that about 2,500 years ago this happened. And your people who were so confident that they were going to last forever, that their flag was going to fly forever, it burned. And your people were scattered among the nations. And you knew and you put them there in judgment and for your glory. Lord, would you help us to grieve with Israel and would you help us look to the cross? Amen. So the first thing we learn here is that Israel's grief is very deep. So what I want to do is I want to talk about three layers of grief that we see here in these 11 verses. And the first is this one. The mighty have fallen. I mean, look at the first three verses. Do you see not just loss, but the loss of something that was great? Look at verse 1. A city once full of people is now empty. And in verse 1, still there, she is described as a widow, which implied marriage. But now that's gone. And we see a princess, the vision of a princess who has become a slave. How the mighty have fallen. And look at verse 2. Lovers and friends, once in abundance, they're gone too. And verse 3. Judah has no resting place. And if you remember, Israel was set apart. They had the promised land. They were designed to be unique. And now you can't tell them from another person. They are no longer set apart. Can I give you just a taste of the historical grief that's happening right here? If you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, in the first chapter, and this is written after the exile and it still hits him hard, a mighty prophet of God, Nehemiah, is told this about the fall of Israel. This is what he's told in chapter 1. The remnant of Jews there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah sits down and he weeps. Because the wall is down and they are no longer separate. Nehemiah, the hero of so many, the great prophet, has nothing to do but weep. And the grief gets deeper. The second layer of it is the triumph of evil. So it's not just that the mighty fell, but how did they fall? Look at verse 4. Israel's festivals used to be packed, now they're not. And their priests, who used to proclaim, now just groan. They can't even do their job anymore. In other words, 
This great God, which was once celebrated at festivals and taught in temples, now just seems casually swept aside by enemies who worship false gods. They're on our turf. They're hanging their flags. They're setting up their statues. Evil has triumphed. And even worse, in verse 5, as Israel begins to see its guilt, there is no evidence that this admission will get them a plea bargain. In verse 5, the children are gone. And in verse 6, the leaders are powerless. They're just running away. They're scattered. The mighty leaders. So in other words, not only is there no present hope here in the leaders, there's no kids. So there's no future hope either. There's no evidence that this is going to change anytime soon. Can I give you just a taste of the historical grief here? If you're familiar with King David, and if you've come to church before, you probably are. He had a son named Solomon. And at the height of King Solomon's power, which you could argue, I think, is the height of Israel's power, 1 Kings 4.34 tells us this. It tells us that people from all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So God's mighty city and God's mighty leader wants a light to evil nations has now been extinguished by those evil nations. It's like the light of the world just got smothered. Friends, we need to know this grief. And I want you to consider this. God's people across their history, every Jew you talk to, they've so often championed the book of Exodus where God delivered his people out of captivity and into freedom. But what happened here? Under the sword of Babylon, they have instead been delivered from personal freedom into captivity. Exodus just went backwards. And finally, we get perhaps the worst part. The full weight of grief sets in with the shame of sin. So Israel begins to realize not just great loss and great evil, but that perhaps all of this suffering is their fault. It didn't just happen. They earned this. I'm just going to highlight perhaps the saddest in, uh, imagery in verse 7. They, that is the enemies, have seen Israel's nakedness. That is, in context, her sin. It has been exposed. Her hypocrisy is on full display. Not so mighty. And so what does she do in verse 8? 
This is the worst. She groans and looks away. She is simply ashamed. Adam and Eve at least made fig leaves. She's got nothing. So what is the result of all of this grief? It's the last sub-point of verse 1, and it's in verse 11. Empty people crying out to a silent God. I mean, look at verse 11. They trade all that is precious, that is their treasures, to simply stay alive. And that, that sounds bad, and it is, because in a ravaged wartime economy, prices go through the roof, and bread is a luxury. You might have to trade treasures for bread. But some commentators actually suggest this situation is even worse than that. Some commentators suggest that the language, which is echoed elsewhere, they suggest that the treasures they're trading are their children. That the people are giving up their children in desperation, sending them away because mom and dad simply can't provide. This is not for the summer. This is goodbye. Parents, just imagine that grief. And here's the worst part. On top of all that, what does this exchange get them? A bit of bread? A slightly longer life? It's almost like you could ask, why? What are they even living for? All the people can muster to say to God as this verse closes is, look and see that I am despised. I told you this would be dark. All the hope of the promised land and all the Bible studies read and memorized by the hopeful children in the Old Testament, all of that seems to be for nothing. The pain of God's judgment is agonizing, isn't it? God's people are alone under this, and they cry out to God, and they don't hear anything. So, what do they do? Well, they do what I think we would all do. They simply cry out to anybody who would listen. But even in this, as we continue, I still think this song of lament is really aimed at God. Let me read what this grieving nation says from verses 12 through 22. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? 
Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate. For the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands. But there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob. That his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord. For I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me. Because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves. In the house it is like death. They heard my groaning. And there is no one to comfort me. All of my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you. And deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. So the second thing we learn here is the united cry of Israel. Guilty and innocent alike. And in their grief, I think they're crying out two things. And the first thing is in verses 12 through 17. That God is angry. God is angry. Now, I'm not, not, I'm not going to linger here because I think you're getting the point. But Jerusalem is ascribing all that damage that I just mentioned... In verse 14, their captivity. In verse 15, the loss of their mighty men. They are ascribing all this loss ultimately as not from the hand of Babylon, but from the hand of God. And look at verse 17. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. 
Jerusalem has become a filthy thing to them. Even Babylon was offended by the sin of Israel. It is as though, I think, God has called out to the nations and pointed to Israel and said, take out the trash. God is angry. And what is Israel's reply to this anger? Well, they cry out not simply that God is angry, but he is just. Look at verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I rebelled against his word. In other words, because of all this, they have no defense. They don't have a plea. Innocent, guilty. Which of them has obeyed God fully? Which of them has never sinned? And so, as their enemies surround them, all sent by God, here's all Israel can ask for in verse 22. To not be alone in their judgment. In other words, they don't ask to be let off the hook Because they know they deserve it. So they simply beg God regarding Babylon. Judge them as well. That's how this chapter ends. Judge them as well. (laughs) That's the happy ending. (laughs) That's it. What do we learn about God when we read this? Well, friends, when you hear verses like Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I don't think the Apostle Paul pulled that out of a hat. I think he's quoting Lamentations. The whole world deserves to be under God's judgment. And we think we're wearing white hats. So whether it's the nation of Israel, rightly condemned here, or the the many nations before and after her, none are exempt. None deserve to be exempt. Even those like Babylon, this chapter doesn't say they're right. They're simply tools for God's judgment. The only plea all nations could equally make is we all deserve to be under the agonizing pain of God's judgment. Let me show you how there's actually hope in the midst of that when we look at the cross. Because in our closing verse, Israel begs God, deal with them... As you have dealt with me. And in a sense, God did that. Because Babylon would fall and then Rome would rise and then Rome falls. But that can't be the end. That's just an eternal cycle of despair. How do you get out of that? 
Instead, here's what God would do. He would stoop down to barren Israel and he would say this, I will deal with my only son the way that I should have dealt with you. God would actually send Jesus to take the full judgment that they deserved. And this not only addresses grief, because God can walk with us in grief, but it gives hope. It would leave a remnant of Israel. And it would even allow for God's people to be found among all nations, even Babylon. So how does this apply to us? Well, while I don't think anybody hearing this is presently suffering in the way that Israel is suffering here, I think that's actually more reason for us to pay attention. Because as, as Peter said last week, this book was written to help us develop a vocabulary for grieving. So let me present the first possible application, and it's for the Christian. Get comfortable with grief. Get comfortable with your grief. Both your own grief and the grief of other people. I'm not saying like buckle up, although you should do that too. What I'm saying is don't think it strange. And don't think it beneath you. Especially the everyday stuff. Let me explain with a recent example of my own grief. So about a month ago, Becky injured herself. And in typical Becky fashion, most of you don't even know it. <laughs> and it's led to constant neck pain. Blurry vision. Headaches that come and go with no rhyme and no reason. And all of this has led to several stretches in the past month where she just had to shut herself down for a couple of days. Last week after church had flared up and I didn't leave the house until growth group on Wednesday. Except to shovel snow. Now, the Lord has been good to help us in the midst of it, to encourage her to rest, which I don't think 10 years ago she would have thought about. <laughs> Kids have a way of doing that to you. <laughs> and the Lord's been good to give me endurance. But here's the funny thing is, here's the funny thing is that the Lord's encouraged her to rest and try not to push through it. But what did I find myself doing? Pushing through it. Just lower your head and get it done. One evening, this week though, 
I actually slowed down long enough to think about it. And here's what I came up with. You ready? I am scared. I can't fix this. Now, maybe a a doctor can help a little bit. I mean, we just went in for x-rays. We're waiting for results. But what if they can't? What if this gets normal? Or what if this gets worse? You know what I keep thinking? What I even found myself doing Well, at least it's not as bad as Israel. That's the wrong way to look at grief. But don't we do that? It actually made me, thankfully, cry out to God in grief. And here's what I said. I am weak. That's grieving in line with this, with this text. I'm taking the pain to God. Because He allowed it. He brings it. Anything worth grieving. That's from God. And Israel does the same thing here in Lamentations. They attribute their grief to God. They don't blame God and say they deserve better. And they don't ignore him and say it's Babylon's fault. They take it right to the top. And we could learn a lesson from them. There's a principle here, I think, that, that gives us a strategy to grieve correctly. Friends, if you're suffering, whether it's kind of your fault or whether it's because of something wrongfully done to you or whether it's just seemingly some anomaly like an ailment, all grief and all pain are under the umbrella of the fall of man and sin. That's where suffering comes from. So instead of measuring whose fault it is, sometimes we forget that it's simply a product of life here. Whether directly or indirectly, it all falls under God's judgment. Life in a fallen world. It's agonizing sometimes. And that makes all grief worth grieving. Because grief is simply meant to drive us down and show us how much we need God to deliver us. And God offers that. He sent His Son Jesus to bear the judgment we deserve. The full judgment. Jesus entered into suffering and grief to the point of death. Yet because of his resurrection, 
He offers a kingdom, not here yet, but coming where grief is no more. So he both walks with us in grief and points us to a future without it. Do you see how satisfying that is? And so in light of that, get comfortable with your grief. And here's, here's how you can help other Christians do this. It's not something for you to just paint over with cheap quotes or biblical sounding platitudes. Let me share one more example because I, I really want to drive this home. Because of Becky's pain, I got behind on projects and it came to a head just last night. And you know what I caught myself doing to feel better? Man, my house isn't as bad as so-and-so's house. You ever do that? Who wins when you do that? Nobody. How did that help anybody? That didn't involve God at all. Here's what I could have done better. I look up at that stacked up project, one on top of the other, and I say this, God, I can't do it all. I'm fighting for the wisdom to even prioritize. But in your wisdom, you made 24 hours in a day and you made me need sleep. Help me to trust you. Help me to run to you when I feel overwhelmed or I'm starting to throw people under the bus to pretend I'm not weak. And then I could have gone to that friend whose house mine is apparently better than and I could have maybe seen if he was struggling in the same way. See how that brings hope? Take it to God. I mean, how much grief is in this room that God could use to draw his people towards one another and towards him? How much grief do we waste? Don't waste your grief. Share it with your brothers and sisters here. Don't feel ashamed if it doesn't seem as bad as Israel on fire. When you develop this vocabulary, you prepare for days like that. When you see evil simply seeming like it's winning the war, when you see mighty people fall, or when you see your, your own sin, and it seems like it won't go away, cry out to God and cry out to other people. And help others do the same. Because in your weakness, He is strong. Right? 
So Christian, get comfortable with grief. And I'll close with an application for those who don't know where you are with God. Because while Christians should get comfortable with grief, you shouldn't. Not yet. Because if you don't know who the Lord is, you look around and you see grief and you see suffering and you think it's random chance or it's God's silence or you think we can stop this if we just shut down the right structures, the right people, the right demographics. If we just dump love on it, we'll win. Where's God in that? The suffering and grief you see here and in the world, it is not random chance. It is not the silence of God. It is the judgment of God on full display. And you will not stop it with a hashtag. And the grief you see now is only a fraction of the grief that comes on the day of judgment for those who reject the saving death and resurrection of Jesus. Your sin is that bad. And if you don't think it is, then God was a fool for killing Jesus. It was that bad. So if you do not trust in Jesus, the grief of this life is actually the best that it gets. But, if you trust in Jesus, take heart and encourage one another. The grief of this life, hard as it seems, is the worst that it gets. Let me pray for us. Dear God, grief is hard. And often we don't even do it correctly. We blame you for the fallen state of the world instead of crying out to you. Or we try to cover it up with earthly comparisons. But Lord, in our grief, help us to admit that we are alone, we are barren, and we must remember that it is you and it is us. And you're good. And we do not grieve alone. And Jesus is proof of that. Lord, help us to grieve with the cross in mind. Amen.